I am super excited uh, to host an old friend uh, and someone that a lot of people will recognize, uh, John Fort, the co-anchor of Tech Check on CNBC, creator and executive producer, host of Fort Knox, and more recently, the creator of The Black Experience in America, uh, The Course. John, welcome to At The Podium. Manny, thanks for having me. So most folks don't know, but uh, John and I went to undergraduate school together at DePaw. And uh, for folks, that's D-E-P-A-U-W, University in Greencastle, Indiana. John attended uh, the same year my older brother Alex did. And that's where I first met John. And, and years later, we were reunited. And I'm, I'm just super amped up to have a conversation with you uh, today. This is what you do professionally. So I told Chad, I'm like nauseous. <laughs> Thinking no, about asking just, you questions for 45 great. minutes. Yeah, I don't have to think up any questions. <laughs> I can dodge your questions. I get to be the guest. This is great. It's awesome. So look, John, I don't know if you know, but uh, you may have seen, I always love uh, kicking off our conversations with three simple questions that I think allow us to peer into the soul of a human. Uh, what is your favorite color? Ooh, it might be blue. I'm 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 your I'm your odd person. I'm such a fan of like art and color. I have a hard time picking a favorite color, but I, I wear a lot of blue, so maybe it's blue. I'll take it. It's my favorite. Uh, favorite afternoon snack. Ooh, I uh, I've got a mixed nuts thing. I get them from Costco, <laughs> and uh, they have these unsalted mixed nuts. I don't know if it's like my, that wouldn't be my guilty pleasure. That's what I, I don't feel guilty eating the mixed nuts. Um, I love the pistachios in there. They add that little bit of saltiness. Uh, yeah. I love it. And favorite childhood superhero. Ooh, favorite childhood. We used to make up our own superheroes. Tell I made me about up one, that. I made up one named Fire Frost. Cause he could shoot fire and ice out of his hands. My mom is an artist. And uh, so growing up, we didn't really know about black Panther or anything like that. Like all the superheroes we really knew about were white. Uh, so my mom was like, why don't you make up some black superheroes? And so we're like, all right, yeah, let's make up some. So fire frost was the black superhero who I made up. Um, I think the name was cool. He started off as super fire Iceman. That name wasn't so cool, but I've, I figured out how to consolidate that down into Fire Frost, which is much better superhero branding, I think. I, I love that. Stay, stay on uh, the childhood for a minute. <laughs> um, I've, I've, heard you, I've, I've heard you comment in, in previous, I had a previous life of about three years on Facebook uh, <laughs> where I no longer exist, but I, I remember seeing you post very just authentically, just, you know, in, in intimate thoughts that you had. And I remember a lot of uh, the comments around your mother's uh, artistic talents and just special, special things that she did. Talk to me about being raised by her and how that created what, what the rest of us see now in you as this like multimedia mogul, just consistent creator of new, exciting, inspiring things. 
Um, talk to us about that. Oh, well, thanks. My mom and my dad can't leave him out. Uh, we, we just came back, just drove back to New Jersey from uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, where they now live, uh, left the boys with them for a couple of days. Um, and yeah, my dad uh, was a minister growing up, so would preach from the pulpit. So, you know, talk about communication and, you know, delivering a message. Some of what I do today, uh, I got that, saw that from him first. And then my mom uh, was a teacher, uh, but primarily an artist. So she taught art. So, you know, that teaching, that speaking, that teaching came from both of them. And uh, she just from the very beginning had a focus on Afrocentric art and expressing oneself, expressing the reality around you, reflecting uh, the community and the family. And she did that through her artwork. Um, she did that in the classroom and uh, really encouraged us. You know, she set up a little easel for me when I was like two, three years old next to her big easel. And, you know, we would paint at the same time. Um, that was a, that was a big part of the creative expression and reflection that was part of my growing up. Is, is that still part of some of what you use the little bit of spare, spare time or extra time that you have doing is, is expressing yourself through art? You know, <laughs> I've um, seen you play the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've done some of that. I don't play as much as I used to in college for sure, but man, everything that I'm doing now, um, like my day job, as you know, I'm on CNBC, sitting in front of the camera, you know, delivering the reporting from the conversations I've had, doing the interviews and whatnot. But then, you know, after that, I learned some web design and uh, I learned some, you know, Photoshop and Premiere and to shoot video and to, you know, take pictures, uh, you know, with a, with a DSLR or a mirrorless camera and to edit those and then create whatever courses or whatever, whatever it might be. So I think the artistic expression as the digital world and economy has opened, opened up has found a lot of different uh, forums for expression. So, you know, that not only communication, but also artistic creation is still very much a part of not only, you know, my, my hobbies, but it's part of my professional life too. It's hard to disentangle those two things. Yeah. I, so I absolutely could see that. And and I've also heard you uh, reference your time as De at DePaul as a, a meaningful time uh, of of learning uh, and and maybe becoming uh, more aware of of good and bad things in the world. And and mm. I don't know what impact it really had on on putting you where your feet are today. But oh sure, you know you and I both have a special relate. Well, all of my brothers and I and yourself have a special relationship uh, with DePaul University. Can you speak a little bit to how you go from Maryland to Greencastle, Indiana? Yeah, not just Maryland, Washington, D.C. My parents live in Maryland now, but I grew up in Northwest D.C. in the 80s and 90s, which is, and at the time, I mean, D.C. is gentrified now, but at the time it was Chocolate City. This is like <laughs> Marion Barry, <laughs> D.C. Um, and then before that, we lived in Brooklyn. That's Thai. Again, before, right, this is like yes. crack cocaine era, <laughs> Bed-Stuy, Jay-Z and Biggie growing up Bed-Stuy. Very different than Putnam County, Greencastle, Indiana, where the corn grows relatively high. 
Um, no, it was a great experience being at DePauw. Um, I, I came to DePauw in part because after the PSAT, all the mailings come and my mom saw the brochure and said, oh, look, Vernon Jordan went here. And I went, Vernon who? Because I was like 17. I didn't know who Vernon Jordan was, but she did, obviously. Uh, we all do now. Um, great alumnus. And yes. DePauw had a great media honors program and a great independent student newspaper. And I was into media and into expression and the idea of uh, a newspaper run by students that came out a couple times a week. That was just really cool. So when I came and visited, learned about the program and, and saw the paper and met the people, I was like, this is the spot for me. What, what would you uh, consider to be the most significant thing that you've taken from your time at DePauw that is consistently uh, a part of your life, your experience, or the way you serve and lead uh, the business that you do at CNBC? I can't pick one thing. Okay. Uh, one, of, one of the things is to be constantly open to change. Hmm. And part of change is learning. Part of change is learning about other people. Uh, when I came to DePauw, I had this mindset like, hey, I'm the East Coast guy. I've lived in cities. I'm coming out to this rural community. I'm these handsome. Folks, no, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, these people maybe need to understand a little bit more about how the world works. Like that was my like East Coast, like I'm sophisticated mindset. Little did I know how much I needed to learn. One of the stories I love to tell. So um, hopefully I'll, I won't tell it too long, but freshman year, I'm part of this media fellows program, honors program, and we're going to go out and talk to some high school students who might be coming into the next class outside a hotel in Indianapolis. And then one of my classmates uh, in the program named Liz, she's driving to India. I don't, I don't have a driver's license at the time, so I'm riding with her. She's from Indiana. You know, we're driving there and it's in the winter and uh, we're going. It's, it's been snowing and I see over in a field on the way these big furry animals, like they've got a thick coat of fur on them. And I'm like, what are, Liz, what are those? And she, she goes, oh, those are cows, John. I was like, no, like they've got this thick woolly, like what, what are, what are those? She goes, those are cows with their winter coat. And I was like, winter coat, cows get a winter coat. Like none of the pictures that I had seen of cows, none of the cows on TV had a winter coat. So no. they, they didn't look like cows to me. And I realized, well, I got a, I thought I knew what a cow looked like. I don't even know what a cow looks like. I think I'm coming out here all sophisticated and I can't even identify a cow in November. Maybe I have a thing or two to learn. So <laughs> I'm, I'm from Indiana. So <laughs> did you know that cows have a winter coat? Yeah, I did yeah. barely, but I did, I you did, did you know that. that. See, I, I had to come to DePauw to learn that. <laughs> so, so talk to me about the path after DePauw, uh, share, share the story. Um, you know, is there, is there a specific moment that you can think of in the story on your path after DePaul that has you exactly where you are today? Uh, 
there's so many people who uh, shaped my thinking or approaches. There's a guy, Troy Cummings. He was a senior when I was a freshman and he worked at the paper and just a great, fun, talented guy. He knew, he, great illustrator. Right now he writes and illustrates children's books. He's a best-selling author of children's books. Still lives in Greencastle, by the way. Just fantastic guy. But he t- taught me how to use Adobe Illustrator at DePauw, at the paper. And his method of, you know, you, you freehand draw something and then you take it into, you scan it into Photoshop and then you put in Illustrator and then you can put the vector stuff over it and you color it in. He taught me this whole process. So, you know, by senior year, I designed the cover of the back to school issue, drew it and designed it out. And people thought I had no business doing illustrations, but I had learned how to do it. At the, so part of what I learned there through that hands-on student newspaper experience is that, that growth, what we now call a growth mindset, that the book wasn't out back then, right? It's like oh, you can yeah. figure out how to do these things. Yeah. You, you stay sharp. You keep your possibilities open by constantly learning back to that learning thing. So, you know, grateful to, to Troy for, for that. Um, you know, Andrea Sununu, a professor at DePauw, oh. who is fantastic and infamous because I thought I knew how to write. Also, I thought I knew a lot of things when I got to DePauw. I thought I knew how to write. I thought I was a pretty good writer. That was my thing. And, but I didn't. And, and I learned that when I got to Andrea Sununu's class and, you know, the first paper that I wrote, she wrote, as much on that paper in red ink as I had typed in it, correcting the errors, saying, what about this? What about that? And then like on the back, she would write in small cursive, just like an essay about your essay and how the next one could be better. And she was so encouraging, but I felt so bad. Like she had to do all this rehab work on this thing. I thought I need to work harder next time to make sure she doesn't have to work as hard to fix <laughs> what I turned in. Uh, so that also that continual improvement um, lesson that I got from Andrea Sununu also has stuck with me. Uh, were any of those? Uh, <laughs> so the second one made me chuckle because yes. Did you take uh, Sununu? She was special. <laughs> You, you took a Sununu class? I did it, but I I had okay. I had a uh, uh, a friends in the fraternity who did. I took two. <laughs> she was infamous for um, if you don't really want to write, you may not want to take that class. <laughs> um, what do you think? So so a lot of people are really interested and excited and curious about the black experience in America. The course. Was it DePauw? Has it been time post-DePauw? Is there a person in your life or a specific moment that really inspired you to build this course? And can you share a little bit about the vision and the objectives for why you're doing that? Absolutely. So uh, thanks for asking about that. The, the Black Experience in America, the course, is something that I came up with last year after George Floyd uh, was murdered. And the, mm-hmm. empas- the emphasis and the impetus behind it was figuring out what to say to our boys who are now 13 and 10 uh, about that. And some of us have heard about the talk that Black parents have with our kids so often you know, about police and authority and, uh, and society and race. 
I needed to have more than the talk because I'd already had that with them. And as a journalist, uh, I don't march. I don't protest. That's part of like we there, there's a certain level of objectivity that that we uh, conduct ourselves with in in public and whatnot. So if I wasn't going to go do public things with them, then what was I going to do? And so what I came up with was there's so many things that I want them to know. It's really a course. And I was talking to some fellow DePaul alums actually about that, some uh, black DePaul alums, and they were saying, well, that's interesting. You want to do, somebody's probably made a course before that you could use. And I was like, okay, that's true. Somebody probably has done it before. So I looked at what was available out there and none of it quite did what it was that I wanted to do. So I, I did end up designing a course in 18 lessons over three parts, um, figured out a structure for it and taught it to the boys and nine other kids over Zoom over uh a month and a half or so over the summer. And I was blown away by their response to it, by not only the change that I saw in my kids, particularly particularly my, my older son, but then that I the feedback that I got from friends about how sure. the mindset of the young people had changed. They're mostly around middle school age. And we, we talked through... Um, Concepts like double consciousness, right? Which is the W.E.B. Du Bois idea about the tension between being black and American at the same time, and perhaps not being seen as fully American and not feeling fully African either. And so how do you reconcile those things through some historical stuff about slavery and civil rights? And then looking at multiculturalism in the era that we're in now, and this idea in the final part, the final cycle of, of the course of false restarts that will take three steps forward and two steps back at these major moments, whether it's, um, you know, uh, the abolition of slavery, three steps forward, but then a botched reconstruction is two steps back. You have the civil rights movement and the laws that get passed three steps forward, but then you get a backlash to that, uh, that ends up being two steps back. I think we've seen that again, you know, with the uh, tragic death of George Floyd uh, a little more than a year ago. We saw a lot of commitments to change and whatnot, three steps forward, but we see a lot of backlash uh, to that happening at the same time that, that represents two steps back. But the overall message though, is that there's progress um, when you move forward based on the right principles. And those, those principles, those tools are sort of what I wanted the course to reflect at first to the kids, but I realized after structuring this, that really it's for all ages. So DePauw, our alma mater, is using it in a co-curricular context. And you know, lots of adults have taken it also. I've been building out interactive lessons and it's it's been um, a really fulfilling journey for me too. That's, <laughs> it's just really special. Um, and I think at a, at a time where a lot of us are struggling to continue to believe in the good of humanity because the world just feels so divided over everything. Um, can you tell us, I mean, this is, I, and I'm sorry, I know you told me, Hey, no prep, right? Good. Uh, this is the one I was the most interested in, you know, cause I have you on TV all day 
Everyone at the firm knows I only watch CNBC. Uh, So uh, what what do you believe are one or two very simple, tangible things, perspectives, philosophies, principles, tactics that people can take away from going through the course that will create a better reality for all of us? I think one of them is, for example, around this controversy that we have now brewing nationwide around critical race theory. <clears throat> and you know, lots of people have different feelings about this. And I, I can understand that because there's a certain cohort of people who feel, look, America is a great country. Uh, I understand what's great about America. Here is yet another narrative that's trying to tear down core things that are great about this exceptional country that we love. And that's their perspective. There are other people who feel there are certain truths that are important to understand. Whatever your sacred cows might be, whatever you think is great or wonderful, uh, history is written by the victors, the conquerors, sometimes the oppressors, and it might be uncomfortable for you, but there are things that you need to learn, right? Um, I think in the course, from a journalistic perspective, I didn't even consider those pieces of it. This is not, the course is not uh, constructed according to critical race theory. It's not Mm -hmm. constructed in a way that avoids critical race theory. What I did was lay out three sections that are first about identity. And I think we all come to history and belonging and culture in this country from the perspective of identity. Whether you are one of the um, First Nations that arrived here, and so that's your identity. And part of it is all these other people arriving and encroaching on land and doing things, right? Or your perspective is, Hey, your uh, your family immigrated a gener- one generation ago from Europe or from uh, South Korea, like like my wife's family did, or you know whatever the case may be. Whether your story starts there, really your understanding of it starts with identity. So, uh, the first cycle in the course, double consciousness, is grounded in identity, not just to learn about the black experience in America, but to see how the black experience in America tells a story about America and cultural identity in in America and how we all belong here and how we all relate here. Uh, The the second part, the second cycle uh, is really more about history. Uh, How we got here is what it's called. And that means literally how we as African-Americans got here to this country, but it also means how we as America got to this moment, to this cultural moment. And it takes a historical journey pointing out people and moments and themes that we otherwise might not pay attention to. Then I mentioned false restarts and that three steps forward, two steps back. So I would point out those three concepts as being unique ways of looking at history and ideas that really um, the feedback I've gotten is that it's thought provoking and conversation provoking for a lot of people who might not have seen um, themes and characters and ideas brought out in quite this way. So for example, you know, in the first part of the course, there's a lesson called the bluest eye that looks at um, 
ideas of beauty and acceptance in our culture and uses Toni Morrison's book as a way of looking at oh. how race plays out in those things and beauty standards and how that influences how we view ourselves and how we view others. Um, that's not your typical social studies class no. fair, but you know, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting ground to cover in there. And that's also the, the feedback that I've gotten uh, also specifically from women and young women who have taken the course. Well, in, in, in that, so that really resonates with me because coming, coming, you know, having a mixed family myself, you know, my, my wife is a Welsh and German, as, as you know, my parents are both from Mexico and my brothers and I were born in the Chicago area and Chicago specifically uh, first generation. But um, I, we often talk about uh, what unspoken insecurities perpetuate or create. Yeah. Right. And and so, you know, if if quietly in your mind's eye, you know, you believe uh, something untrue about yourself. And you grow into a role of significant influence and impact over others, you know, how does that impact the trajectory, not just of your life, but of everyone else that you're uh, directly and indirectly influencing through those insecurities that you continue to perpetuate and carry on with yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think those are exactly the sorts of themes that Toni Morrison pulls out of the bluest eye that are so relevant to us, no matter how old we are, right? Because I think we tend to view some of these identity issues and beauty standards as pure negatives. Like mm -hmm. if you actively think something bad about yourself or about, you know, people who uh, come from a, a certain ethnic group or, you know, have a broad nose or have thicker lips, whatever, if you actively think about that, then you, you harbor this. But I think sometimes we get those messages without them being directly stated. And we can carry these ideas without understanding that we're carrying them. And unless we shine a light on the ideas and really think about what we actively speak and what we actively believe and what we uh, actively show is beautiful or acceptable or, you know, mm -hmm. unless we call these things out and talk about them and shine light about them, shine light on them. Sometimes we carry these things around without, without even knowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> so I, I, I don't have a history of listening to you speak about uh, mindset specifically, but you know, a, you, 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 you have to be all over this topic. I mean, talk to me about, um, just the significance of mindset, auditing your circles, you know, surrounding yourself with people who are the rising tide, elevating you into uncharted territories of exploring and new discovery. And yeah, I mean, because how do you create as much as you've created already at such a early young age? And then you're still like, yeah, I'm going to tackle this thing called race. And, and <laughs> I mean, like, really, like, how do you do that? 
And so talk to me about mindset. Like how have you maintained a, a healthy, aggressive, exploratory mindset through all of this? And, and what are you doing to continue to uh, ensure that you remain such an interesting and exciting uh, creator of conversation for all of us? Well, thank you, first of all. I mean, <laughs> what, what a great question. I should just let that float out there. I'm, I feel interesting and exciting. No, uh, I, I think mindset is right. You, you put the emphasis on the right thing there. And I've just learned so much over the past five years in particular that's benefited me. And you brought up at the beginning Fort Knox, which is my digital show, started out as a podcast. And I didn't even understand what it was going to deliver for me over the years I just knew in the beginning that I, I had a problem that I was getting dumber. And what I mean by that is I was getting, say, uh, an interview with Satya Nadella, the interview, the, the CEO of Microsoft, and he'd be willing to give me 45 minutes to an hour for an interview on camera. And, but I knew that we would only end up showing 10 or 15 minutes, maybe 20 tops, probably around 15 minutes on air. So 45 minutes of it would never get seen or heard. And so what I found myself doing is feeling guilty about the fact that so much was going to end up on the cutting room floor. And I was shortening the interview and asking not the questions that I wanted the answers to, but the questions that I thought they would end up airing on live TV. And so I realized I'm asking dumber questions. And I'm not forming the relationship with him that I should be because he's probably thinking, why is he asking me this? Like, yes. aren't there better things that we could be talking? Right. So I'm holding back thinking that I'm doing him a favor because I'm feeling guilty. I said, wait a minute, we live in a digital era. Why don't I just have the whole conversation? Right. It'll be a podcast and the people who want to hear it can hear it. And then we'll have a good conversation and that'll have a benefit in and of itself because I can't keep doing this where I'm just asking these questions that I know that my editors or managers or whoever want to hear, but it's not really what I want to be talking about. And so, um, and so that was the, the genesis of it. But what I found happened was I ended up talking to people uh, at a length that I wouldn't otherwise and getting amazing stories and amazing insights. And, uh, like normally at CNBC, we, we cover big companies and stocks that are publicly traded. And, you know, that, that's what the focus is. But I found myself talking to entrepreneurs like Tom Siebel or uh, Luis Von Ahn, right? Tom Siebel, he had founded Siebel Systems, sold it to Oracle, became a billionaire. He's got this new startup. Would we have had him live on CNBC? Not to talk about his new startup at the time. But boy, C3AI is now public and it's worth even more than Siebel was. <laughs> when Oracle bought it. And I learned that Tom Siebel got trampled by an elephant and it almost killed him. He was told he'd never walk again, but through his perseverance and mindset, he, he figured out how to find the right doctors. And, and now he Walking. walks and sails, right? I got that story <laughs> and got it on. And right. So all of these things build on each other, um, forming these relationships through these conversations. And Manny, I wish I were like more like you, but I'm not. I'm not like a super extrovert and a great 
like speaker motivator. So I'm not the sort of person who is really good at saying, oh, hey, so-and-so, let's go out to lunch and just like hang out. I hated asking people out to lunch, hated scheduling dinners. Cause like what, we're going to go eat and then the company is going to pay. And then we're going to talk about like, and I'm, I don't know. I just didn't, it wasn't good for me. What's good for me is Fort Knox. I schedule an interview. We talk about the company. I learn about you personally. Um, we form a relationship through that. And then it builds, right? That's what I found based on how I'm built really works for me. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, it became, it became this like incredibly special and exciting uh, 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 media. Uh, I mean, um, outlet to distribute media. And now, now you have the other hand. Uh, on the other hand. And and I was thinking about that as you were speaking earlier. And I was like, wait, he just did this in the middle of a normal conversation. He gave me both sides <laughs> of the argument on something. And I'm like, oh, I should have remind. Hey, congratulations on your one year anniversary for on the other hand. Thank you. I mean, but that's what that's why I was like asking you about mindset. I mean, how how I mean, where, where did the idea or, you know, the thesis concept for, on the other hand, come from? And uh, uh, where do you see that going in the future? Here's, here's where on the other hand came from. Um, so my boss, the, the head of the newsroom at CNBC, had said, uh, I kind of want you to be on Squawk Box once a week. They need more tech on Squawk Box. You should, once a week, you should be on Squawk Box. I was like, all right. But it didn't happen, right? It's like, Squawk Box, would, they never kind of figured out a thing to do or a slot. And every once in a while, they would ask for something, but it was just kind of random. And uh, make a long story short, the thing with Squawk Box didn't ever really happen. It kind of wasn't working out to the point where one time they asked me to do something. And I was like, no, I'm not like if we're if we're going to do something like on Squawk Box, let's make it something special. Don't just call me up randomly <laughs> to do some hit that anybody could do. Right. And so they were like, all right. What do you want to do? And I said, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to do something special for Squawk Box because there's lots, anybody who watches Squawk Box knows there's lots of arguing on Squawk Box. I said, why don't we do a segment that models civil debate? I'll take 45 seconds to a minute and argue one side of an issue, usually having to do with tech. And then we'll say, on the other hand, and I'll turn around and argue the other side as if I had never said the first thing at all. Right. And that'll like draw out facts. It'll be kind of funny. Right. Cause I'll be completely contradicting myself and that'll be the thing. And they were like, all right, let's start. When do you want to do it next Thursday? And I was like, all right, next Thursday we'll start. And that's, that's how it happened. It hasn't changed from the very beginning. So I, <laughs> so that's probably one of uh, the segments that I enjoyed the most. And I do genuinely simply just value the ability to hear both sides of a conversation civilly because it's just so uncommon today, right? <laughs> it's just it's so, hey, uh, go to a uh, school board meeting. <laughs> um, so it's just so uncommon today. And, and I think it's genius. It's been amazing. Can you see that? Can you see that segment expanding into something longer? You know, I often think like, oh, that conversation could have gone on for five or 10 more minutes, right? Could you see it expanding into something longer? Could you see it becoming a panel? Could, I mean, just could you see it transforming into something uh, uh, larger than what it is today? You could be somebody's agent 
you know, you could, I don't know if you want to talk to the network brass, you know, I, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Maybe we can work something out. No, I mean, um, I think for the segment itself, I've always tried to make it as tight as possible. Mm -hmm. If we continue to talk about it after great, but to me, I, I wanted it to be something that would fit in a Twitter video, right? It was yeah. always, let's, let's get it within three minutes. The beauty for me is I want to get people a little bit smarter about this issue, maybe even a lot smarter in as little time as possible. And then that's part of the brand. That's part of the value of it is, man, I got a lot right out of that, out of that three minutes. And hopefully I was entertained. Maybe I even laughed at some point uh, in that thing, but, um, but stay tuned. I'm working on another segment for another show uh, that, uh, that you might just see on CNBC before the year is out. I love it. That's exciting. So, so talk to me. I mean, you mentioned a few, but you've interviewed so many CEOs, tech founders, just really exciting humans uh, with like just a tremendous vision for life and consistently living in possibility of what humanity can create. Talk to me about a few of the common characteristics, mindsets, values, philosophies uh, that you see across these people. And after you share a few of those, can you just tell me tell me about one of the most uh, exciting ones you've invested time recently and why that really stands out to you? Sure. You're going to have to, you have to pepper me here and press me a bit because my I mind's going to go all over the place. But the first sure. one, one of the things I've done with Fort Knox that has made me really happy is um, I think pursued diversity in a really authentic way is I decided starting out, I want this to be mostly about founders and CEOs, but I also want it to be about innovators and people who are starting things, even if their title isn't CEO in the classic sense, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the people who I interviewed over the years was Q-Tip. You might know him from a Tribe Called Quest, just kind of like mega rapper, producer, super creative Legit. person, Legit. right? Like from the late 80s, 90s, on through today, just like he's Q-Tip, the abstract, you know? Um, so I did a Fort Knox with Q-Tip. I, I tried really hard not to fanboy out during... I didn't entirely succeed, but uh, Q-Tip, for those who know about him, is extraordinarily prolific as a musician. At one point, we were talking about the uh, radio show that he does for Apple Music on Beats One Radio, and it's like a two-hour weekly radio, and I'm like, you're, you're Q-Tip, and you've got this like Kennedy Center residency thing that you're doing, music that you're putting out, people you're working with. Like, that's a lot of work. Why do you do that? How do you find time to, to do that? And he said, you got to do work that makes you do work. Huh. He said, the things that I have to do to make that show, to do that show, make me better in the other things that I do. You're like, I got to study the music. I've got to know what is the latest stuff happening out there. I've got to listen to music from other parts of the world. So you do work that makes you do work. And I thought, wow, okay, let me, let me take that nugget and translate it into my work in life. What are the things that I need to learn? What are the things that I need to get better at? And what is the work that I can do that's going to make me do those things? It was an extension of that initial Fort Knox idea of, hey, I'm going to 
frame this in a way that allows me, that forces me to have the conversations that I want to have and that I need to have. And it just widened the aperture that much more into, okay, well, I need to learn to edit video maybe. And captioning is a good idea. How do I find the right tools and the right processes to do that efficiently? And how do I structure what I'm making myself do so that it's forcing me to get better and better and more efficient and more prolific at those things? So that's one. Q-tip. Uh, and you're going to have to press me because I'm going to probably stop at the right. You asked me about commonalities between people. And I think one of the most important commonalities I've seen and learned from these leaders is that they're not working for the carrot. You know, they're not working just for the cheese at the end of the maze. And I think so often when we look, <laughs> is that is that what Simon says too? I mean, I just, I just think of his book, The Infinite Game. It's my third time through it. And it's like, I mean, there's just no finish line on this thing. And it's not just that, but I, I found so often the way we tell stories about successful people is they wanted this and then they worked for it and they got it, right? And it's like, okay, so if you want something, work for it and you get it. But so often what happens is you want something and you work for it and you don't get it. And then the question is, do you stop? Do you decide, well, I'm no good at that? Do you decide, well, maybe I don't really want that as much. Maybe I'll try for something. Or are you picking goals? Are you picking processes? Are you picking paths where it's so important for you to travel that path that even if the reward doesn't come immediately, you're going to keep doing it and keep learning and maybe find your own reward along the way. Maybe this isn't you know, the, the reward that I was looking for, but I find reward in the process and what I've learned from this. And maybe it helps me to see what's why I should go over the next hill. And what I found in my own processes through Fort Knox, through on the other hand, right, is like maybe the initial assignment or the initial offer isn't so hot, but what can you make it into? And then as you continue to do, what I found is I continue to do over well, on the other hand every week. And oh my goodness, it's been, I'm writing that thing Wednesday night, like every week for a year. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work, but it makes me do work. It makes me think about, What's the most controversial issue in tech right now that has people divided? And now it's going to make me think about what are the arguments on either side of that? How do I construct a a convincing argument that's on the opposite side of what I immediately assume is right? And that prepares me for tech check and for my Mm -hmm. Fort Knox interviews and for everything else that I have to do in a way that's so important. And what I see in these leaders is they find a level of motivation and a mindset that allows them to power through disappointment, through not mm-hmm. getting what that initial right reward was supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talk about it uh, often, uh, you know, it, it's serving as, as the servant leader, steward and team captain to a financial services firm in Michigan. You know, we, we talk about how our, our industry is really plagued with rejection, right? I mean, you know, we've got to be effective at, at sharing our vision, our, our value proposition, and how we add value to families and business owners across the country. And at the end of the at the end of the day, we have to be okay with the fact that eighty percent or more of rejection is due to timing and or what's going on in someone's life or their lack of belief that you might actually be able to help them. And so you've got to have a lot of grit, right? When you when you say 
this is what I intend to achieve, accomplish. This is the objective. Um, you know, grit has a lot to do with your ability to bounce back from, I think, some of those really unexpected outcomes and a lot of that adversity that tests your commitment. To what you said you would do, I always think of like the uh, 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 the the aggregation of marginal gains being you know the way to uh, create just continued progress forward to to what we said was uh, extremely important to us, and I could see that come to life in so many of the interviews that I've I've had the privilege to listen to you uh, host. One of the other things that it's forced me to do or taught me. Fort Knox interviews are long form mm-hmm. interviews, you know, 45 yes. minutes to an, an hour long, typically as a rule. And that's way different from what you do on live TV on CNBC. Like you're having <laughs> five to 10 minute conversations, sometimes multiple anchors jumping in, right? So yes. it's just a different skill set. But one of the areas that you'll see more and more media companies moving into is live events, right? It's an important ancillary business revenue stream, being able to convene people and uh and have conversations that go deep into subject matter and go deep into strategy and leadership and you know these topics and what i found was as we're moving into the event space i had been training for it right unlike anybody else at the network i am constantly doing long-form interviews and learning to do them better um huh. So it's not, it, it becomes more of a reflex and more of a study and more of an interest area for me aligned with what the company needs to do. That wasn't the intent starting out, but I found that if you figure out what you believe about what's important to you, what's important to your in- industry, what's important to your company, and you follow where those values lead you, right? The rewards show up even if they're not obvious in the beginning. So, uh, so, so I love that. So, so let's uh, just, you made me think about how in our industry, there are candidates to become a financial advisor entering into the industry every day across this great country. So let's pretend uh, that we go back to February 10th of 2003, when I first entered the industry, I'm new to the industry, but we're in the environment we're in today. What, what are, what are uh, two or three simple things that you would, from your perspective, I mean, just being this incredible creator of media and content distribution and getting these conversations out there in the marketplace, what are two or three things that you believe someone in our industry or any industry where you are selling something to add value to someone's life uh, that they should be doing to, 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 to capture people's attention? Well, I've seen you post some cool stuff about sales that's taught me a little bit about sales. So for example, I, I love the video that you posted about how you need to understand sort of the script of how um, to describe the product and the value proposition behind it before you get the privilege to customize that to your own way of communicating, right? I I never really thought about things in that way because I'm a person who doesn't like to be constrained by rules and process. And and in sales, I always saw it as sort of like a blustery thing where if you got a big personality, you can go out there and do it. 
So to think, okay, well, there's a, there's a script, there's a process, there's a structure, and you learn that. And then once you learn it, you get the privilege of adapting it. That's interesting. I think things like that, no matter how much technology changes, no matter how much products change and the offerings, the details change, those basic structures and truths don't change. So the first thing I think you do is you learn those from the experienced people in the industry, like Manny, right, who have learned those through the school of hard knocks, right? You, you learn what those processes are. And then I think over time, once you learn those processes, you learn the product, you start to understand who you are, strengths and weaknesses. And when you understand your strengths and weaknesses, that helps you to adapt when it comes to both, right? It helps you to play to your strengths. It helps you to understand, well, I'm not so great at this area. So boy, if I can partner up with somebody who is great at that and we can come at this together, then we'll be even more fantastic. And once you get realistic about that, you begin to expand your possibilities. And then, you know, one of the things, again, that I've learned recently, it was always hard for me as a journalist um, that I wasn't good at networking. I just wasn't, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an introvert. I didn't like asking people out to lunch. But what I realized is once you find your comfortable lane of interacting authentically, mm. right, you grow and expand in that. Uh, so yes, there are some things that are unique and special about this time. There are some challenges that we face now, whether it's pandemic, disagreement, politics, what have you, uh, income inequality that makes certain things out of reach for, for, for uh, different people, at least initially. Yes, there are those things that are unique to this time, but there are certain fundamentals that don't change, right? And there are certain things about yourself, strengths and weaknesses that are gonna make your contribution unique. So isolate those things, the things that are unique to the time, the things that don't change, the things that are special about you. And when you bring your knowledge together on all of those fronts, you'll get a good combination, I think. I appreciate you sharing that. What's the simplest thing that comes to mind right now that humans can do to just make the world a easier, calmer, more peaceful place to coexist in? Practice humility. Expand on that. And it takes practice. I, I think um, I'm, a, I'm a person of faith. I'm a, I'm a Christian. So this will come from that perspective, but I think it's adaptable to all kinds of perspectives. I think there's a difference between being humble and being humiliated, right? <laughs> being, being humble is when you don't elevate yourself um, above the appropriate place. I don't think being humble is debasing yourself, right? My belief is being humble is trying hard to see yourself the way God sees you. Now translate that to whatever your belief system mm -hmm. is, see yourself in your appropriate place mm -hmm. in nature or in the ecosystem or, or whatever it happens to be. But I think that takes work and that takes practice because we all have ego, right? And we all have drives mm -hmm. and we all want things and we want to place ourselves at various levels. So how do we work on being in a place where, and in, in you know, Christian tradition in the scripture, there's this point where Jesus is telling his disciples when you go to somebody's house, don't seat yourself at the head of the table so that then the person whose house it is has to tell you, no, go down to a lower place. Seat yourself at the lowest place so that then the person has to call you up and say, no, you're the guest. Don't sit there. You belong up here, right? 
that takes work, that takes practice. But I think no matter where we are in our process or in our career, we've got to work on having that mindset of when I go into this situation, let me not seat myself at the highest place. Let me enter it and see where I can serve, where I can help. And then if somebody elevates me, so be it. I love that. It reminds me of uh, the book uh, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. It's just a a really special book that I've taken a a great deal from. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Where where is the puck going for John Fort and uh, his uh, many, 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 many uh, priorities, projects, passions uh, moving forward? Well, I'm always trying to figure that out, but I think it uh, it comes along the lines of that do work that makes you do work. And uh, I'm, I'm also trying to understand how to get the absolute most out of the work that I'm doing. So A, you want to be doing work that forces you to learn and grow in the right areas. But then I think once you've done that work, how do you make sure that you get the most out of not only the product that you've created, the relationships that you've built, how do you build on those things and make them more valuable? So, you know, I I expect and hope to be, like I mentioned earlier, uh, launching another segment at CNBC over the coming weeks and months. And, uh, you know, look for some um, some more expressions of Fort Knox coming as well. I love it. So the Black Experience in America, the course, where can people find it? People can find that at Fort Media. That's F-O-R-T-T-M-E-D-I-A.com. There's a free download where you can get the overall view of the material. There's a premium download where for five bucks, you can get the illustrations uh, as well, kind of a richer package. And then there's some interactive courses. I'm gradually in between Fort Knox and on the other hand, and CNBC like building out Uh, an interactive version of the course, about 45 minutes to an hour long, where I will walk you through the material and you can see the videos, um, the documentation, the websites that I used uh, in actually teaching the course live and go through at your own pace. John, man, it's been a a blessing and privilege. Uh, Always uh, so interesting, enjoyable, exciting, just man, energizing to be around you. Uh, I think our last get together was at the Fluttering Duck in uh, <laughs> Greencastle, Indiana. Man, I right. look forward to seeing you again. Again, thank you so much, uh, John, for CNBC co-anchor, tech check, creator, executive producer, host of Fort Knox, and uh, creator of the Black Experience in America, the course. And and on the other hand, y'all got to check that out. Man. <laughs> that's legit. You were straight fire today. Thank you. And that and that's a DePaul University product. There you go. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Thanks for having me, man.